All right, so Calvinism. So Calvinism is uh, very, very interesting to say the least. Um, I am going to be talking about some of these things from a biased viewpoint, um, but I also want to give you some of their explanations as to what they believe and why they believe it, and some of that's included in your guys' handout. So like I said before, if you have any questions whatsoever, please stop and ask, and we'll try to work our way through it. All right, so first of all, uh, Calvinism. So this is oversimplified, and, and I will say this, that if a Calvinist would um, be in this room today and they would go through the material that I'm going to give you, they would be very mad at me. But I'm giving you an oversimplified understanding of it. There's a lot of things that they throw into the mix, a lot of smoke screens they like to put out there, a lot of distractions to, to get you not to look at these things. But coming from the perspective of, um, I went through a youth group that struggled with these doctrines. Um, part of my testimony is that when I was a junior, I think it was actually at the, the maybe tail end of my sophomore year of high school, summer going into my junior year of high school, um, we ended up having a guy who was hired on as a youth pastor at my old church, my dad's church growing up, and he was a heavy, heavy Calvinist. And so he would begin to teach some of these things in our youth ministry, and we would even have like, you know, guys' Bible studies and stuff. We would go over to his house, and you know how they have like the Dead Poets Society? You ever heard of that movie? Um, well, if you haven't, it's a good movie. It's really, really good. But he would have like the Dead Theologian Society. It's, it's, it's kind of like what it was. And we would study theology and we would talk about different doctrines of theology. And that was kind of like our Bible study. It was not practical at all. Um, it was just very much on the heady part of Christianity and a lot of theological studies. So we would touch some of these things. But when it came to these doctrines of Calvinism, they just never sat right with me. Like I, I entertained them. I thought about them, I considered them because I trusted the guy, but when I would, when I would think through them and, and try to look at the Bible from that perspective, like it just never, it never sat right with me. There was just always something, and I couldn't, I couldn't put my finger on it, and I couldn't articulate it because these guys were smarter than me. They knew how to jump through hoops and, and, and try to trip me up in my thinking, and I couldn't exactly put my finger on it and couldn't really defend my, my viewpoint, but it made me want to work harder in the scriptures to understand what do I actually believe. And it took me years. I mean, it took me years to finally come to the place where I know what I believe and why, and it was a struggle. It really, really was. Um, and so it's, it's something that's just deep, deeply ingrained in part of my DNA. And every time I, I sense Calvinism, I just want to just scream. I just want to fight it at every turn because I was almost deceived by it. All right, so Calvinism. So the doctrine of salvation by predestination, or they also call it, um, you know, the, the doctrines of grace, which is hilarious. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But the doctrine of salvation by predestination was brought to the forefront by Augustine, advanced by John Calvin, but really hasn't taken root in the mainstream Christianity of the U.S. until the last 40 to 50 years. Now, pausing there for a second, uh, as you get out there and you have discussions with other believers and other Christians, especially people that are studious about Christianity, about doctrine, about theology, once you start throwing out the name Augustine, they highly praise Augustine. He is like one of the church fathers that everybody looks up to, that everybody is like, oh, you know, go back and read his writings. They, they almost worship the guy. Augustine was not a good guy. Now, I can't read his heart. I don't know his motives on what he did and why he did it. But when I read his works, because in, when I went to Bible college, I went to Moody Bible Institute, we had to read um, the Confessions of St. Augustine, which is a, a core fundamental book where they get a lot of their theology from, and reading through it, if this guy believed what he wrote, he is not saved. Uh, and I went through and had to pick this thing apart. I had to write a paper on the guy. Um, but if he believed what he wrote, he is not saved. And he is the one person who is responsible for most of the Roman Catholic doctrine that exists today. So that's Augustine. He was not a good dude. People think that he is, but he's really not. And then John Calvin advanced most of his stuff. So now it seems as if everyone that claims to be a fundamental Bible believer is automatically assumed to be a Calvinist. That's what you find out there, out in the world today, out in mainstream Christianity. Calvinists are a very intellectual, studious, and arrogant theological sect. And that is so true. 
you can't hardly even talk to them. They are so intellectual. They they study um, you know Puritans and church fathers more than they study their Bible. And when you try to propose something to them, they are very quick to fight you on your belief, and they want to win the fight. That's what that's how they study. In Christian circles, many Calvinists will treat non-Calvinists as ignorant, second-class citizens. They typically are well-exercised in their doctrines and know how to persuasively use the Bible to contend for their positions. Therefore, we must be humble, equip ourselves with a good understanding of the Bible, and be able to earnestly contend for the faith, which is what it says in Jude 1.3. These guys are hard to fight against. So when it comes to the founders, um, there are many people you could attribute as the founders, but John Calvin is the one who a lot of them go back to. Now, most Calvinists will say they're even appalled at the term Calvinist, um, but you know it is what it is. John Calvin was the first one to really purport this stuff in his writings outside of Augustine, and so John Calvin is the one that we're going to focus on. So John Calvin... He was born in 1509, uh, died in 1564. He was a French theologian who aspired to be a Roman Catholic priest, but became a lawyer by the edict of his father because Calvin would earn more money as a lawyer than a priest. Calvin parted ways from the Roman Catholic Church and had a conversion experience sometime in 1530. So there's nowhere in his writings or in his journals or anything that, that talks about how he came to the place where he knew he was a savior and he called out to Jesus for salvation. What he writes about is that one day he had some sort of a feeling inside of him that God saved him. So there's nothing clear that he's even born again, which is interesting. And then six years later, after his conversion experience, he published his first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion. That is this book here. Try reading this bad boy. Ugly. It is, this is the Institutes of the Christian Religion. So he has this conversion experience. So he's Catholic parts ways, has a conversion experience, and then six years later writes a book about the doctrines of the faith, which is quite interesting because someone who's born again and then six years old in their faith and they're writing novels on what people should believe. Like it doesn't make any sense at all, but that's what he did. Thankfully, I didn't have to read this one for college. I had to read this one, which is the abridged version, and this one is loaded with notes of things that I absolutely despise. And I can read some of those a little bit later if we've got some time. And I made a mark in the back of everything in here that is absolutely incorrect. So that was fun. It made me so mad. I remember reading that book, and I was back in my room when I was living at home because I wasn't married at the time. I was living at home, and I was reading this book, and I remember I'm back in my room like, idiot, this guy knows nothing about the Bible. And I get so frustrated, I had to put the book down, and I would go out into the kitchen, and I would vent to my mother. <laughs> And I would just, it would just make me so mad. And it just, it, and I hate it because there's so many people that are duped by this guy that it just, it's just terrible. It's made more damage within the church uh, that Christ bought with his own blood than, than some false religions have. It's terrible. Okay, so the Institutes of the Christian Religion. He eventually ended up in Geneva, Switzerland, where he proposed and implemented a reformed city church government in 1541. Kind of like Constantine, by the way. He tried to marry together the world with Christianity, and that's what he did in 1541, which ended up being a disaster. Calvin's legacy never resulted in a lasting denomination, but his ideas in theology found its place in the Presbyterian Church. Later, Calvin's church theology became the foundation for the Reformed churches. So as you guys uh, travel around, you see different church signs. There's some church signs I want to run over with my car. Uh, but there are other church signs that where they say like Reformed Baptists, or you'll see there's some Baptist churches that say G-A-R-B, Garb. Like there's one right by, by uh, Canton Baptist Temple. Like if you're passing Canton Baptist Temple on Whipple and it's on your right-hand side, the next church up is a Baptist church where it says G-A-R-B. They are Calvinists. But typically a Reformed church will have the term Reformed in it. Um, if they don't, then it's more than likely a closet Calvinist church. Like, for example, Maranatha. Everyone on staff there, to my knowledge, uh, believes and trusts in Calvinism, but they'll never teach it and they'll never preach it. When it comes to passages where it would reveal their doctrines, they just shy away from them. And that's usually what happens. So they get you to be, come into their churches, become members, and then you find out later that they're Calvinistic. So there's lots of churches that are like that, unfortunately. 
All right, so his theology became the foundation for the Reformed churches. All right, so looking at their authorities, because every false religion has multiple authorities, you have the first one here, the Bible. So Calvinists are considered fundamentalists that view the scriptures as the foundation of their theology. They quote and exposit passages like John 6, Ephesians 1 and 2, and Romans 9 to prove their doctrinal beliefs, but further investigation will prove that they have to jump to Hebrew, Greek, and the writings of the church fathers and other reformed theologians to support their doctrine. This is what they do all the time. You go to verses like John 3:16, which say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That verse, a Calvinist will take that and they will say, For God so loved the world. Well, the world there doesn't mean like everybody in the world. And the whosoever doesn't really mean whosoever. And they'll start to jump through these hoops using Greek and Hebrew and all these other things in order to prove their point. So if you're a Calvinist, you, it is impossible for you to open up your Bible as a Calvinist and read the Bible and take it for what it says. It's impossible. You can't do it. There is not, and this is a very strong statement, but I believe it with all my heart after studying the scriptures like crazy about it. If a person is born again and they have a Bible and they are stranded on an island and they cannot have access to any other writings, no internet, nothing, and they just have their Bible, it is impossible for them to become a Calvinist. Absolutely impossible. And so the best thing to know when it comes to defending your faith against Calvinism and people that are Calvinists is just read your Bible. Read your Bible, believe it, keep reading it, keep believing it. You know, Pastor Thomas used the example before that the best way to spot a counterfeit is by studying the real thing over and over and over and over and over. And the counterfeits will just suddenly appear. And that's exactly the truth when it comes to Calvinists. All right, so you got the Bible. Their other authority is Augustine of Hippo. This is Augustine. We've already talked about him a little bit. So here's a little bit about Augustine. So converting to Roman Catholicism and baptized under the leadership of Ambrose of Milan, who was greatly influenced by men such as Philo, Origen, Athanasius, etc., and all of those dudes are bad. So when you study them, I wanted to put those names in writing so that you'd have them. If you go back and study Ambrose, Philo, Origen, Athanasius, and you study what these guys believed, they are way off base. Augustine became one of the most key figures in history that shaped the theology of the Roman Catholic Church because he brought about the doctrines of original sin, apostolic secession, amillennialism, Mariology, and allegorical Bible interpretation which are all very negative things. Augustine also believed in salvation by predestination, and this is largely detailed in his famous book titled Confessions of St. Augustine. And then you have John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. So six years after having a conversion experience, Calvin wrote this work that details his theology. It is boasted as a literary and theological masterpiece, but viewed through the lens of the Bible, one will see, easily see, the heavy Roman Catholic influence the philosophical justification for unbiblical doctrines and overall lack of scriptural support. It is also very easy to see the influence of Augustine's thought process and theology, especially when touching areas of salvation by predestination. So just to give you a, a sampling of this, let me see if I can go through this one. We'll find one that really, really stands out. All right be one that has lots lots of exclamation points next to it all right come on let's see here let me just go back here i'll look back here because there's one about baptism that I wanted to show you guys. Oh yeah, this one's good. Okay. Alright, so here's one section that Calvin believed in salvation through the church, which is what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, by the way. So John Calvin did this. Alright, so he says... 
I will begin with the church, the gathering of God's children, where they can be helped and fed like babies and then guided by her motherly care, grow up into manhood and maturity of faith. Therefore, what God hath joined together, let not man separate, which he says in Mark 10, 9. For those to whom God is a father, the church must also be a mother. This was true under the law and is true even after Christ's coming, since Paul stresses that we are children of the new heavenly Jerusalem which he doesn't really support just by putting one verse in there. And then he says, The title, Mother, underlines how essential it is to know about the visible church. There is no other way of entering into life unless we are conceived in her womb, brought to birth, and then given her milk. We have to remain under her control until at death we become like the angels. Our frailty ensues that we do not leave this school until we have spent our whole lives as pupils. Beyond the limits of the church, we can hope for no forgiveness of sins and no salvation. That is Roman Catholic, ladies and gentlemen. Totally Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that you cannot, you cannot be in favor with God unless you are faithfully attending and a part of the Roman Catholic Church. That's exactly what he says. And the reason why stuff like this is in here is because he came from the Roman Catholic Church. So his theology is heavily influenced by the Roman Catholic Church. And there's so much trash like this that's in here. So much. So much. And I don't even hesitate to use the word trash. Because I was even reading through this, and I just wrote at the very end, big caps, there's no personal assurance, there's no confidence in your salvation. He didn't believe that at all. He didn't believe that at all. So it's nuts. It's nuts. So if you want to pass some time, because you've got nothing else to do, you can either help us move, or you can read that. You know, one or the other. Okay. All right, so... Oversimplifying that, then, we can get into their doctrines. And Calvinists do not like this uh, acronym, but it is the best way to describe their major points of doctrine. So you have this acronym TULIP, and it stands for Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, Limited Atonement, Irresistible Grace, and Perseverance of the Saints. So, like I said, oversimplifies, this is what this means. Total Depravity. Humanity is corrupted by sin and incapable to choose to do that which is right and righteous. A lost man has no ability in themselves whatsoever to do anything good and righteous at all. So that's what they believe on that. Unconditional election. This means that salvation toward mankind is God's free choice and without respect of persons. So in other words, to put this in a different way, salvation towards mankind is God's choice, not yours. God chooses who's going to be saved, and it's not like he chooses one person over the other. Like, for example, God is up in heaven before time began, and he knew that Mark and Luke would be born one day. And he looks at them and says, mm, let's see, I'm going to blindfold myself, which is impossible because God knows everything. But Mark, you're going to be saved. Luke, you're going to go to hell. And I'm not picking that because I like Mark more than Luke. I just picked it just because. That's unconditional election. His choice have, it has no conditions on his choice. So he just picked just because. And there's no reason why he picked one person over another. That's unconditional election. Okay? Clear as confusing? Okay. All right. Good. Limited atonement. The blood of Jesus Christ was only shed for the elect, not all mankind. Because that would be a waste of God's blood. Why would he do that? Knowing that not everyone would be saved. So, obviously, he didn't. He only died for those who would actually be saved. That's what they believe with limited atonement. Irresistible grace. God appoints a specific time where those elected will be redeemed, and it is irresistible. So, on God's calendar of events, you have an appointment with him tomorrow at 10.52 a.m. where you will be saved, and you cannot say no. That's irresistible grace. There comes a point where you will be saved, and you have no choice in the matter has nothing to do with you calling out to God for salvation, nothing with you even believing that you're a sinner that needs a Savior. There's going to come a day, like John Calvin, where you had a conversion experience, and now you are graciously redeemed by the hand of God. Yeah? So there is no free will? No, absolutely not. They believe that free will died with Adam and Eve. That as soon as they sin the first time, free will is now dead. You have no choice in the matter whatsoever. So there's two 
there's two lines of thinking with Calvinists. One is that we don't even preach the gospel at all because the lost man can't even understand it. So why preach to them if God's the one that's going to save them anyway? So they won't even evangelize their neighbors or anything. Um, they think it's a waste of time. Then there are others that like Ray Comfort where he evangelizes like crazy um, to get it out there because he says, well, God knows when that day is going to come and it's just an honor to take part in the moment because who knows if me sharing the gospel with somebody might be the moment where it's now their irresistible salvation daytime, whatever. Because God told us to do it. If God told us to do it, then we should do it, but it's just going to happen whenever God wills it. Yeah, Jamie. Because everything is planned out. Because there's no free will at all. So that moment where you shared the gospel with that person was predetermined that you were going to share the gospel with that person and that was their moment of irresistible grace. Yeah. I feel like there's a, I know a church who the pastors believe, or at least I know one believes in the Calvinism, mm-hmm. Calvinism but then he preaches the gospel. So are there churches that would just basically not say they're lying but in a way just not say they're Calvinists and just preach that anyway there are many churches that are Calvinists and they just would not do anything about it like for example and I'll pick on them just because I can and I want to Maranatha so Maranatha is a church where they believe in Calvinism and they will avoid it at all costs if they began to preach and teach Calvinism and be hardcore about it the way they actually believe about it their church would dwindle so fast they wouldn't have a church the reason why they don't talk about it is because it keeps people there. Most people that go to Maranatha have no idea what Calvinism even is, which to me is very deceitful. Because if I'm a pastor of a church and there's a doctrine that I believe that heavily influences the way that you view God, and then you are unfaithful to share that with your people, then you are a false prophet. And then now there's a curse on you. So anyway, that's just my take on it. I know those are fighting words, but we're in a safe place. Yeah. So not to get off on the tangent with Maranatha, but like in a case with like Maranatha, where they still preach the gospel and their members, yes. they are like, they're going to an actual church that believes the Bible. Yes, absolutely. Especially because it says Maranatha Bible Church. And that will happen a lot. Um, the issue though, and it was funny because... Um, like, for example, um, you know, my dad was sharing um, a few of the stories of, like, the baptism sermon a few weeks ago. He was sharing with a guy who he's now, he used to be friends with, they lost touch, and now they've kind of come back together, rekindled a friendship, they now fish together. Well, this guy goes to the chapel in North Canton. So um, he was sharing the stories about the baptisms, and the guy sat there dumbfounded. He's like, you know, I can't even tell you the last time we had an adult baptized at our church. And, there, and years ago, I've heard this like third hand, so take it for what it's worth. But it, there was a conversation started in similar regard where, when was the last time someone was saved here? Like it just doesn't happen. Most churches, and we, we take this for granted by the way, most churches that are out there, they really don't have people coming to salvation through Christ, through the gospel like we have here. Like the fact that we have baptisms the way that we have them every quarter or we have five or six people that have incredible testimonies, or that doesn't really happen in most churches. It really doesn't. It doesn't. The only times baptisms occur in mass scale like that, which, I mean, I, I use that term loosely, would be like a faith family or at like a friend's church where baptism is essential for salvation, and they may not necessarily tell those people, but someone will come forward because they had an emotional experience, and then they will say, you need to be baptized. And they won't necessarily tell the person why, but then they get baptized. And from that church's perspective, they think that's essential for their salvation. So that's the only other time those things really occur. Yeah. So I actually grew up at that church that you pointed out. That's the church I grew up going to. Yeah. Um, but until, I mean, I went there probably until like seventh grade. Mm-hmm. And I think I only saw one person be baptized the entire time I was there. There was never any guests. Like, unless somebody had like family staying with them. Like, it was just it's a little tiny little church. So now it's even smaller. Yeah. But... They don't go, you know what I mean? They don't yeah. Go at all or like yeah, our church is an anomaly. It really, compared to most churches, most churches that are out there, this is what happens. You have a church, people come, 
and you have a bunch of Christians, and I use that term loosely as well because who knows? Only God knows. But you have a bunch of Christians that come together. They're a part of this church. Something unfolds in the church, whether the pastor ends up retiring and a new guy comes in and they don't like that guy, or the current pastor makes a decision that a lot of the church members don't like and they don't like that either. So then about half of them or three-fourths of them end up leaving and they go to another church. And so like sheep, they go, follow each other to another church where then they're like, okay, we kind of like this guy. Same thing, same thing. Something else unfolds, new pastor that doesn't quite meet their standards. Then half the church or maybe a quarter of them leave and they go to another church and they go to another church. Most churches that exist in our area are people that have been to four or five different churches in the area over time. The new numbers that they have that enter their membership roles are not new converts. They're not wayward Christians, most of them. And this is, this is not – I'm making exclusive statements, but this is, this is the way that it is. There's always one or two that will get saved in their congregations, and that's awesome. But most people that leave there and go to other places, it's because they just got mad at the last church, and now they're trying to find another church to fit in. And they call them sheep stealers. And there's a lot of churches that accuse other churches of stealing their sheep and all that stuff. Whereas our church, when we first started, our church doubled and tripled in size because people were discipling and seeking to win souls and giving them the gospel and them getting saved. And then they got discipled and they started evangelizing other people. I remember when my dad first started coming here, I was going down to New Philly at the time. And one of the things that stood out to him the most was he said, and this was back in 2000, let's see, I think it would have been 2004. At that time, he said that this church, half the church won the other half to Christ. And now they're discipling them. That does not happen anymore in most churches. And frankly speaking, we take this for granted. And if you think I'm kidding, just start going out and start attending other churches for a little while and just find out. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. All right. Okay, so bringing it back in. So getting into this. So what I did here is the – oh, yeah, I forgot. Perseverance of the Saints. We didn't hit that. So perseverance of the saints. Those elected will endure and never fall away. And there's a caveat to that. Most people believe that perseverance of the saints means once saved, always saved. Like once you're elect, um, you cannot be unelected, which is a true statement from a Calvinist perspective. But I'll get into that in a little bit because there's a little, little twist to that one that they normally don't explain very well. All right, so this is straight from the mouth of Calvinists right here. Total depravity. I'm just going to read through these, and we're going to get more confused about it, and then we'll take a look at what the Bible says. All right, total depravity. Sin has affected all parts of man. The heart, emotions, will, and mind, and body are all affected by sin. We are completely sinful. We are not as sinful as we could be. We are completely affected by sin. The doctrine of total depravity is derived from the scriptures that reveal the human character. Man's heart is evil and sick. Man is a slave of sin. He does not seek for God. He cannot understand spiritual things. He is at enmity with God and is by nature a child of wrath. The Calvinists ask the question, in light of the scriptures that declare man's true nature, being utterly lost and incapable, how is it possible for anyone to choose or desire God? The answer is he cannot. Therefore, God must predestine. Calvinism also maintains that because of our fallen nature, we are born again not by our own will, but God's will. God grants that we believe... Faith is the work of God. God ordains people to eternal life, and God predestines. So that is straight from the mouth of a Calvinist. And the the error that he goes wrong here in writing this is where he says, in light of the scriptures that teach man's true nature as being utterly lost and incapable. Okay, that word incapable is critical. Because to say that a man is incapable, absolutely incapable of hearing the truth of God and making a decision on their own, that is a huge statement. But that is critical for a Calvinist. So I want you to see that. All right, and then unconditional election. God does not base his election on anything he sees in the individual. He chooses the elect according to the kind intention of his will without any consideration of merit or quality within the individual. Nor does God look into the future and to see who would pick him lest God learn and react to man's choices. Also, as some are elected into salvation, others are not. So he conveniently passes over others, which then go to hell. Then you got limited atonement. Jesus died only for the elect. Though Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for all, which means it had the power to save everybody, it was not effectious for all, which means it wasn't applied to everybody. Jesus Jesus only bore the sins of the elect. Support for this position is drawn from such scriptures as Matthew 26, 28, where Jesus died for many, 
Not all. See there, they want to get specific. John 10, 11, and 15, which say Jesus died for the sheep, not the goats, per Matthew 25, 32 through 33. Which, by the way, sheep there are the Jews, but that's beside the point. John 17, 9, where Jesus in prayer interceded for the ones given him, not those of the entire world. Acts 20, 28, and Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, which state that the church was purchased by Christ, not all people. And Isaiah 53, 12, which is a prophecy of Jesus' crucifixion, where he would bear the sins of many, not all. Okay, and just as a side point using logic as our basis here, when you make the statement all, can that include many? Yeah, because there are many people in the world, so did Christ die for all of them? Yeah. Okay, just wanted to throw that out there. All right. Irresistible grace. When God calls his elect into salvation, they cannot resist. God offers to all people the, the gospel message. This is called the external call. But to the elect, God extends an internal call. So there's two different calls, apparently. And it cannot be resisted. This call is by the Holy Spirit who works in the hearts and minds of the elect to bring them to repentance and regeneration, whereby they willingly and freely come to God. So they, are will they don't do it willingly or freely until God forces them, which is interesting. Some of the verses used in support of this teaching are Romans 9.16, where it says that it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who has mercy. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where God is said to be the one working salvation in the individual. John 6, 28 and 29, where faith is declared to be the work of God. Acts 13, 48, where God appoints people to eternal life. And John 1, 12 to 13, where being born again is not by man's will, but by God's. Okay. Anyway, all right, we'll get to that. Perseverance of the saints. I know, you guys mad yet? Okay, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm focused. What's your hand? Okay. Up four. <laughs> Where is, like, on, like, it was, like, from, like, the last point, but then on to the next Yeah, 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 sorry. Okay. So, we're just talking about, like, how, like, he died for, like, certain people. Does that yes. 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 So the question of, okay, so God doesn't, if, if God loves everybody, wouldn't he die for everybody? Okay. So this goes with what, what he said here, where he says there's an external call. So it says where the gospel is shared with everyone, but then there's an internal call where it only actually becomes affectious in the person that God actually chose. So this is where, this is where it, it doesn't make any sense because if God now, my dad's used this illustration before, and I like it. And so I steal it, and I use it all the time on this topic. That would be like God standing at the top of the stairs, and at the bottom is a paraplegic, because they have no legs and no arms. And God is at the top of the stairs saying, come up and be with me forever. But he doesn't do anything to actually help them to come up. Whereas someone who's elected, God would then come down and actually carry the person up the stairs. It doesn't make any sense because why would God say, be saved, receive salvation, whosoever, when it really isn't whosoever? That's my biggest issue with Calvinism is that the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But really, God didn't say whosoever. Like, even though it says that, that's not what God meant because only those that call are the ones that are actually elected anyway. That's how they jump through that and excuse those things. So, I have another question. How okay. do you then become elected? Like, how do they know that you were elected or whatever to become? Like, so, can you just, like, fake it? So, how can you know? Yes, you can fake it. Okay, so, Perseverance of the Saints. Let's get this and I'll answer that question, all right? So, Perseverance of the Saints, because this will answer that. You cannot lose your salvation because the Father has elected, the Son has redeemed, and the Holy Spirit has applied salvation. Those... Thus, what? Those thus saved? I guess. All right, whatever. Those thus saved are eternally secure. They are eternally secure in Christ. And, and then I added this because it wasn't clear, and I wanted to make sure that this guy actually had his facts straight, who's actually a Calvinist. However, because of mankind's deceitful and desperately wicked heart, Jeremiah 17, 9, one cannot know that they are truly part of the elect until the moment of their death. This is, this is very important. 
Some of the verses for this position are John 10, 27, 28, where Jesus said his sheep will never perish. John 6, 47, where salvation is described as everlasting life. Romans 8, 1, where it is said that we have passed out of judgment. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where God promises to never let us be tempted beyond what we can handle. And Philippians 1, 6, where God is the is the one being faithful to perfect us until the day of Jesus' return. So that, I threw that statement in the middle for a reason. Because an honest Calvinist will, will say this. That you do not know that you're part of the elect until the day that you die. Perseverance of the saints works out like this. Okay, I believe that God elected me, but I could be deceiving my own heart. And I just know that up front because I'm desperately wicked and my nature is evil. So I am going to do God's will in my life. I'm going to participate in church. I'm going to serve. I'm going to preach. I'm going to evangelize. I'm going to do all these things that God tells me to do in the scriptures. Because there's coming a day when I die where I almost have to prove to God that I'm part of the elect by my works. They prove the fact that he elected me or I'll find out on that day that I might provide this evidence of my election, but then God says, all that was a sham because your motives were wrong and your heart was deceitful and desperately wicked and you need to go to hell. So this is no different than the Roman Catholic Church, which is why I wanted to bring that up about Calvin and about the Institutes of the Christian Religion and why it's so heavily influenced by the Roman Catholic Church. There really is no difference between the Roman Catholic Church and Calvinism at its very fundamental core, but they will never admit that. They will never, ever admit that. Got a headache yet? Yes. Because of the total depravity of man, you cannot have knowledge of God unless he's elected you. So if you have the knowledge of God and you're following him willingly, then he's elected you. Because mm-hmm. you can't have that knowledge without him giving it to you. So it's basically like you can never be in light, what they call enlightened to the scriptures, unless he's chosen you. So if you so that's how you know. Like so that's it. That's how they say they know because God gave them the knowledge to know about him. Yeah. Which is really bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Very true. Okay. All right. So now that I've given you all the massively confusing stuff, which you can read and reread and reread and read and reread and reread and reread, and reread, and reread. <laughs> let's look at what does the Bible actually say, and this will help us tremendously, tremendously. Okay. Okay. So this is something that is a struggle for me sometimes because. Because I was so entrenched in some of this stuff and my brain was worked over this, when I read certain passages like the Ephesians 1 and 2, when I read Romans 9, when I read um, you know, other places like that, you know, John chapter 6, I see the way that a Calvinist interprets those scriptures. And so I almost have to like unwind my thinking to then take a look at what the Bible actually says. And this is true of anyone that's been in false doctrine. It doesn't matter if you're in um, charismatic churches um, Reformed churches, Roman Catholic Church, whatever. It doesn't matter. If you've come out of something like that, you have to almost unthink and then rethink just using the Bible. So the first thing is this. When it comes to predestination, because it is in the Bible, you can't ignore it, but you've got to understand the context. You've got to understand what God is doing here. So God predestined the body of Christ and the glorification of the New Testament believer. That is what God has predestined. Go to Romans 8. So now let's crack open the Bible, which is the only thing that really matters tonight. And look at Romans 8. Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. And take a look at verse 28. Romans 8, 28. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Hard to believe. But when you do, you have great peace in your heart. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And now here's where the Calvinist really likes to grapple onto this stuff. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Okay, so a Calvinist will read these verses, especially 29 and 30, and they will say, this teaches that God predestinated you unto salvation. Here's the deal, though. Let's just work through this very, very slowly. Okay, verse 29. 
For whom he did foreknow. What does foreknow mean? To know beforehand. Right? Very simple, very easy to understand. Okay? For whom he did foreknow, those who he knew beforehand, he also did predestinate to salvation. What does it say? To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So all this is simply talking about is that those who he knew beforehand, because God knows everything from the end to the beginning, forwards, backwards, upside down, inside out, whatever. God knows everything. So he knows who is going to be saved. He knows the people that are going to call out to him for salvation. Easy to understand, easy to believe, because God is outside of time. He created time, so he stands outside of it, and he sees it all as one big eternal moment called now. So he sees everything. So whom he did foreknow, he knew Luke Johnson was going to get saved. Therefore, Luke Johnson is predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son. That is what that says. Very simple, very clear. So that means it doesn't matter what Luke does in his life, God will put things into his life and take things out of his life, and that means that it will conform him into the image of his son. That's what he does. He's a good father. That's what he does. And so then, verse 30, Moreover, so he's carrying on the same thought, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. So the same line of thinking carries through. It's not complex. So those that he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son, them he also called, of course, because why would someone be conformed to the image of his son if they were not called to do so? And it says, them he also, whom he called, them he also justified, because justification happens through the blood of Jesus Christ, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. So all this really is talking about is that God predestined this sanctification process to, the, to occur in the life of every single believer. When a perfect person trusts Christ as their Savior, they come to the place where they know they're a sinner, they need a Savior. At that moment that they call upon Christ for salvation, God has now predestined that person to be conformed to the image of his son. He justified them. It's as if they've never sinned. And now they are, are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And when they are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, they will be glorified. That's all it's talking about there. It's very easy, but a Calvinist will twist that and make that sound like something that it doesn't say. All right? Got that one? Okay. All right. Look at Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 and verse 5. And we'll back it up a little bit because Calvinists like to capitalize on this one as well. Verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. And then look at verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Okay, now this can be very, very easy to get tripped up because here's how the Calvinists will read these verses. Okay, and it's, it's subtle, but it's so important. All right, look at verse four again. This is how the Calvinists will read this verse. According as he hath chosen me unto salvation in him before the foundation of the world, that I should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated me unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. That's not what it says. What does it say? It says us, plural. Plural form, very important. And so all this is teaching is that God predestined that there would be a group of people here called the us and the we that would receive Jesus Christ and there the predestination is in verse 4 that we should be holy and without blame before him in love and that we are predestined unto adoption so every person that exercises their free will choice to receive salvation is now included in the us and the we and that group of people they have been predestinated to be holy and without blame before him in love and they will be adopted as his children very subtle but very important it's not talking about the individual believer it's talking about the group of people that meet a certain condition. And that condition is, you know you're a sinner that needs a Savior, and you've called upon the Lord to save you. That's the only condition that's there. 
And that's taught in John 3.16. That's taught in Romans 10, 9, and 10 and verse 13. That's, that's taught in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. That is taught, I mean, all over the stinking scriptures. It is taught everywhere. First John, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Everywhere. But they conveniently disregard those other scriptures. Terrible. Okay, let's look at the next one. Jesus' blood atoned for the sins of the whole world. We'll just look at one on this one and it'll be done. Look at 1 John 2 to you. I quote this one a lot, and there's a reason. It is burned into my soul. (laughs) An honest Calvinist will not be able to get over this verse. This verse will smash their doctrine into smithereens, but they will not let it. 1 John 2, 2. And he, talking about Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, speaking about believers, but also for the sins of the whole world. Whole world. Whole world. Not part of the world. Not a selected few or elected few. The whole stinking world. Jesus Christ died for the whole world. The Bible says it clear in black and white. And the only way that you can argue that is if you go back to the Greek and try to just squirm your way out of it. Easy? Okay, and frankly speaking, when I think about this, Christ dying for the sins of the whole world, that is what God would do for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why would God say, I love the world, going back to Lydia, your point, I love the world, but I'm only going to die for some of you. I love you so much as I inadvertently send you to hell because I didn't choose you. It doesn't make a lick of sense at all. And this is why it never sat right with me at all, ever, ever. Because that is not the God of the Bible. That is not Jesus Christ. Not once did he utter anything remotely close to that when he walked on the face of the earth. Not one. I mean, just look at it from this perspective. The Jews, Israel, he loved them. When they rejected him, what did he do? He cried and he wept. And he said, if only you had known the things which had been for your peace, but now they're hid from your eyes. How often I wanted to gather you as a hen would gather her chicks, but you would not. How does that fit within Calvinistic doctrine? It can't. So their God and their Jesus is not the God and the Jesus of the Bible. And I don't care how well they want to paint it, how well they want to argue it. They do not believe in the same God that is spoken of from your scriptures. They can't. It's impossible. It's impossible. And that is why it is a false doctrine. It is an absolute false doctrine. And that's why it's in our world religion study. Salvation is freely available to all who respond. I mentioned that over and over and over and over again. Let's look at one. Go to Romans 1. Romans 1, verse 16. Once again, got to get into some otherworldly languages to get rid of this one. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Now, what the Calvinists will say there is say, well, okay, right there, everyone that believeth. Only those that are called can actually believe. That's how they twist that one. That's not what I see in the scriptures. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's not what the Bible says, but that's what they make it say, and they twist it. They rest the scriptures to make that happen. God does not force salvation on a person. He doesn't force salvation. Um, let's see here. Let's take a look at, um, we're already in Romans. Take a look at um, Romans 2 and verse 11. For there is no respect of persons with God. I like that. Very simple. God does not respect persons. He does not choose one person over another, even if he has no preconceived conditions on it. Like, that blows my mind, too. Okay, so God knows everything. And so you're saying that God just all of a sudden said, you know what, I'm going to choose not to know everything about everyone, and I'm just going to randomly look at everyone's Facebook profiles that have no picture, and I'm just going to pick people, and then you're going to get saved, and you're not going to get saved. That makes zero sense. Why would God do something like that? God knows everything. He knows everything about every single person. And so for him to say, yeah, I don't know anything about you, but I'm going to pick you just because. That's just out of the random chance that you're going to be saved. Yeah. What do you got, Jamie? Um, I get kind of but like my thing is, 
So like in Psalm 39, God knit us in our mother's womb before we were born. So God made everyone, right? Yes. So if God made everyone and God's a perfect God, how do you make, how does a perfect God make something to just grow away? You yep. cannot make junk. He's perfect. You can't make something that's not perfect. So okay, go to Romans 9. Let me tell you what they would say with that one. Because I've asked that same question. Romans 9. Because the same argument can be made of Pharaoh. So back in Exodus, when Pharaoh existed, you could say, what was the point of his life? Because at the end of it, God just destroyed him because he didn't believe God. Verse 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, he hath mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then to me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Who are you to say that God would do something that he wouldn't do? That's what they say. Shall the thing formed to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? So they believe the people that are not saved are called, according to this passage, vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. So God made them, but he made them for the purpose and intent to show his wrath upon them. This is what they would say. That they are the vessel through which God can show his wrath so that everyone can be glorified and know God's full nature. Because if there were no vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, then no one would know his wrath and they wouldn't understand God. All the questions you're asking yourself in your head are the same things I've wrestled with for years. It makes no sense whatsoever. And then if you actually look at the context of Romans 9, he's talking about the nation of Israel. He's not talking about people that trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior to be born again. That's not what he's talking about at all. At all. At all. Okay, and this last point will help to answer this too because I've already mentioned Romans 9. Election is unto service, not salvation. This one's big. If you take a look at the term elect or election in the Bible and you just study it out, you'll find out election is unto service, not salvation. Not salvation. Now, this might be a little bit confusing, but I explain it this way. Okay, if you are saved, you are elected in this definition. If you are saved, if you are born again, you are elected to serve God, right? Okay, absolutely, that is totally true. Can a person not be saved and be elected to serve God? Yes, absolutely. Pharaoh, that's the example that we just saw. Pharaoh was not saved, according to the, the, the conditions based out of Exodus and things previous to that. But God used him for his honor and for his glory. He served God and God's purposes. The Antichrist, is he elected? Yes. He serves God by being the rod of chastisement to the nation of Israel during the tribulation. That's out of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, other places. But he is not saved. Salvation has nothing, election has nothing to do with salvation. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And that's important because most Calvinists, they use the term election and salvation interchangeably. They use it interchangeably when it is not at all. It is very, very separate from one another. That will help tremendously. And most Calvinists will never understand that. Okay, we are way out of time. Um, but if you have any questions about it, I can try to answer some. So if you need to leave, feel free to leave. But does anybody have any questions? Yeah, Kent. You mentioned at the beginning that Calvinists will kind of, some will reject the name Calvinist and they don't like Calvin. Yes. Like, why is that? Because um, the, the term Calvinist and Calvin, they don't believe that he was a true Calvinist. They prefer that we believe in the doctrines of grace. That's what they will say. And they really believe that these doctrines are part of the um, Reformation movement. So they will say that the doctrines of the Reformation, the Calvinism as we define it tonight, are actually doctrines that the Reformation stood upon. So they try to go back to those guys, which is why they use the term Reformed churches. Yeah. Anything else? Yes. So what about, like, what would they say about, like, They believe that people that walk away from the church were never elected. They were never elected. Yeah. What if they come back? 
they could then be elected then, and that was actually their time of salvation. Like here, let me give you an example. So my, um, I got to be careful. This is on a podcast. <laughs> my former youth pastor, who did things that are absolutely unspeakable, let's put it that way, had a conversion experience one night late upon his bed between him and the Lord, where he felt the warmth of God just overtake his heart, and he felt that he was graciously redeemed. He never called upon God for salvation, but that's what happened. That was his experience, which ironically is very similar to charismatics, by the way. But that's another point. So, but then he gets into the ministry. He's plagiarizing sermons. And then on top of plagiarizing sermons, he actually has a closet habit that is actually despicable that was then found out upon, uh, upon researching his computer. And he was a senior pastor at the time. Um, and so they thought, well, maybe that was just malware or whatever. But they found out about him plagiarizing sermons, so they said, you need to start writing your own sermons. So he started writing his own sermons, and they were terrible. They were terrible. He couldn't write a sermon with a lick. And then it happened again on his computer where they found things that are very inappropriate, and they brought his attention. And here it turns out that he was, um, he was gay. He was closet homosexual. And then he had to resign, and he was the senior pastor of a church at the time. In that circumstance, most Calvinists would use that example and say that he was never part of the elect. And that he was deceitful and he was deceiving himself the whole time. It's not that he could never be part of the elect, but that he just wasn't at that time. And that he was lost. Which I believe he probably was lost. Because the Bible says very clearly that once you have the Spirit of God, that it gives you enlightenment into the Scriptures and that you'll be able to understand the things of God. But anyway, that's a whole different topic that we could spend some time on. So it's very confusing. So if someone walks away, they were never part of the elect. It's not that they can't ever be part of the elect, but they were just faking it at that time. And that's why you can never really know that you're part of the elect until the day you die. But if you, I don't Yeah. So there's a chance that someone could actually be saved, yeah, but, but they don't believe they're part of the elect. But I thought like it's possible. Right. I, yeah. It is It is very weird. Okay. I get what you're saying. Okay. That just seems really like Catholic. It is very Catholic. Like because then you're just Yeah. And the only difference with the Catholic is that they can make a free will choice to absolve their original sin, partake in Mass. So they can, they can literally do works. But the Calvinists... They, they don't put emphasis on the works, per se, but personally they do. Because how else are they going to prove to themselves that they're actually part of the elect? So it's more hidden, really, than when it comes to a Roman Catholic. Yeah. yeah. If you really didn't know who they, he was picking, if he really was being very random and didn't know, then couldn't someone die before the moment of their election? Mm-mm, because God ordained everything. Free will does not exist in the world of a Calvinist. Yeah. Do they believe like babies go to hell if they die? Like if they're not part of the elect? Yeah. 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 If babies are not part of the elect, they die and they go to hell. And that is like, and most Calvinists, I would say, would not venture that far, but hyper Calvinists would believe that. Hyper Calvinists believe in a double predestination, and that means that you're predestined to heaven and you're predestined to hell. So when God. See, the moderate Calvinists will say God predestined you to salvation, but then he passed over the others because he didn't have to choose them. We were already under condemnation in our lost state. We didn't even deserve God to be gracious to us to begin with. So he passed over these other people, and they're just going where they were meant to go. And then everybody else, he just chose unto salvation. Now, the hyper-Calvinists will say God picked in both scenarios, which is actually the more honest approach because if God chooses one, he is intentionally not choosing the other. So if they just be honest, all Calvinists should be hyper-Calvinists, in my opinion. Basically, God doesn't love everybody. And they'll go to passages where, like in Psalm, where it says that God is angry with the wicked every day. And they'll say, see, God hates sinners. And he hates them. And he has every right to hate them. And who are you to actually say that God can't hate people? And they'll question it. So God's not No, 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 he is. It's just what he's not. Because yeah. he's perfect in his anger and his wrath and his justice. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. Just study the Bible and you'll have everything you need. All right, let's pray and we'll get out of here. God, I pray for that you would help us just to uh, be at peace with these things in our heart, knowing that we hold a more sure word of prophecy, that we can study your scriptures and be confident in what you've said and how you've said it, and that we don't have to jump through hoops of Greek and Hebrew to understand what you said. You've given it to us in plain English that we can trust with our whole heart, and I'm so thankful for that. And so, God, I pray that you would give us a heart for people that are in false doctrine, that we would not have the desire to be angry at them per se, um, but that we would just understand that this is really the work of the devil to thwart the work of God and to destroy your church. And so in that sense, we can be angry. So I pray that you would help us to have the right mind towards this and that we would just wholeheartedly believe in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.